Disclaimer. This podcast discusses subjects surrounding demons, demonic possessions, demonic presence, hauntings, and uncomfortable topics related. Please listen with caution. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Truth or Demons Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie, and today we're going to talk about a super intense haunting. That's right, the disclaimer is in full effect today. Also, I want to give a small trigger warning for animal death and infanticide, or infant homicide, so take heed, sensitive souls out there. All right, buckle up, it's going to be a wild ride. This is episode three, The Farm. So I'm sure most of you have seen the now famous film by James Wan that marked the beginning of an insanely terrifying movie franchise and sparked a few other debates and even a lawsuit, but more about that later. If you haven't seen The Conjuring, we'll be talking about it a little bit in this episode, so here's your spoiler alert. If you'd like to watch the movie first, go ahead and pause now and I'll see you back here in a bit. If you have seen the movie, what did you think? What crossed your mind when the opening scene illuminates the screen accompanied by creepy music? Then a message begins to scroll up the screen. The message ends with the line, this film is based on true events. I remember how freaking excited I was at the opening of this film. I was thrilled that the Warren's cases that I'd always heard so much about but really knew nothing of were about to become big screen phenomena. I was obsessed with the movie. I watched it over and over. But at some point in my obsessing over the film and how amazing the portrayals of Ed and Lorraine by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga were and how good the story was, a thought occurred to me. How much of this story was actually true? I thought back to what I knew about Amityville and some of the other well-known hauntings that have movies to embellish, I mean, tell their stories. So I began digging before I ever even thought to start a podcast. And I was thrilled to find there was so much more information to uncover. I discovered a lot of the story was considered true and based on true events. There were, of course, liberties taken, but for the most part, the story clung pretty tight to its roots in its big screen adaptation. Or so I originally thought. Turns out, loads of articles online and YouTube videos and social media shares say it was all true, but only because they didn't do the deeper research. In reality, the only details of the movie that actually happened were a family of seven moved to a farm on a beautiful piece of property and started experiencing a haunting almost immediately. Everything else was made up by Hollywood and the Warrens. Thus began my research and a very, very deep dive into the actual true story behind this terrifying film. This particular deep dive was going to wind up being quite a bit deeper than I ever imagined. I really couldn't believe I'd gone my whole life and never heard of this haunting. I did grow up out west, though, and I had no idea how cool the New England area actually was until I was an adult and started traveling on my own. Anyways, so the more I dug into this story, the better it got. First, I learned the oldest of the five parent daughters, Andrea, was known to be very active in the paranormal community. Then I learned she'd written three whole books about her family's 10 years on the farm. I learned about the books via another podcast and Andrea herself speaking with the host about them. I was delivering for Amazon at the time and cannot remember for the life of me which podcast it was, but I've listened to most of her interviews and I recommend all of them. So as I'm listening to Andrea tell her story, the part I'm most curious about comes up. The host wants to know more about Ed and Lorraine's actual involvement in the case. Up until this point, she's explained a little bit about her life on the farm, growing up experiencing these things with her sisters and her mom and how her dad was handling it. This is really riveting stuff. Then, the million-dollar question. Did the Warrens really save this family from an entity tormenting and possessing their matriarch? Before I tell you the answer, let's start at the beginning and break down this phenomenal story. In the beginning of the film, 
Carolyn Perrin and her husband Roger are moving their family of seven into a large farmhouse on a beautiful piece of forested land. Next on screen are their five daughters running amok amidst the hauling and unpacking of boxes and furniture into the home. In the first novel of three by Andrea Perrin, House of Darkness, House of Light, Andrea paints a vivid picture with her words when she describes the farm. The novels are so beautifully written you forget half the time you're reading a scary story. I felt like I was there by the creek when her father first dips his toes into the water and falls in love with the place. As Andrea tells it, her father wasn't instantly sold on the idea of moving to the farm, but it really didn't take him long to get there. The books, as usual, cover so much more than the movie. In the beginning of book one, the story doesn't begin at the farm on move-in day. Andrea starts off with a little bit of backstory on where they lived before they moved to the farm and what it was like there, and what led Andrea's mom, Carolyn, to seek out a new place to live, leading her directly to the farm. I love how Andrea tells the story of her mom discovering the farm and what it took to purchase it. I won't go into too much detail because I highly recommend reading the novels for yourselves. I also really wish Andrea would record them for Audible. I unfortunately don't have a lot of time for reading and when I try to, I usually fall right to sleep. So I found this really cool app that will read pages of digital and physical books to me and I used it to listen to the trilogy while I worked. So admittedly, I didn't read them, but I listened. I've actually listened to them all a couple of times and each time I feel like I catch something I missed before. It's full of detail and you really feel like you're there when you're reading along. This case has many unique aspects to it, one of them being how quickly the experiences began upon moving in. In the movie, it was fast, but in the book, it was on move-in day, and it started extremely harmless and only something they really realized upon looking back on that first day on the farm. In the movie, the family gets moved in, the girls pick out their rooms, and everything seems perfect. But almost immediately, things start to get weird. Upon waking that first morning in the house, they find it to be freezing. Carolyn goes room to room checking on her girls, and each complains it's just so cold. Carolyn and Roger agree, and then it's just sort of dropped as a concern after that. In reality, the cold was a constant and incessant problem for the family, mainly Carolyn. In the beginning, Roger explained it away because they moved in in the dead of winter and the house was over 200 years old with really poor insulation. When they move in, they're told by the previous owner that the fireplace is blocked off and are given strict instructions to leave it that way. Something about some swallows in the chimney, Carolyn thought but couldn't quite remember. Anytime she would bring it up, Mr. Kenyon, the former owner, would evade the subject. But it was the middle of winter and Carolyn was more concerned about her family and the chill she felt to her bones. So one night, while Roger is away and Carolyn is at her wit's end with being frozen to her core, she decides to renovate and open up the fireplace. Looking back, the family believes this had a huge part in increasing the already unsettling activity in the home. In the movie, the first sign of activity other than the bitter, unnatural cold was a series of things the second night in the home. Beginning with Christine, one of the daughters, waking in the middle of the night to her ankle being yanked while she sleeps. She tells her sister Nancy to quit it. Nancy wakes up and responds confused, asking what she's talking about, and Christine continues to complain, telling Nancy to quit grabbing her foot and to quit farting because it stinks. Nancy denies both accusations, and the girls end up going back to sleep. This moment never really happened. There were occurrences in the bedroom, but not this specifically. One of the major complaints in the bedrooms, according to Andrea and her family, were the beds would move and shake or vibrate. They also did experience foul smells in the home, but usually during another common phenomenon that started occurring after Carolyn opened the fireplace. Back to the movie. Simultaneously, while Christine is experiencing the foot grabbing and the foul smell, Roger, their father, alone in the downstairs living area, is experiencing a strange banging sound that he initially thinks is coming from the basement, which the girls accidentally discovered earlier that evening while playing their game. In real life, the girls did not play a game called hide and clap, and the cellar was not a secret. 
but it did contain some interesting items from previous owners. But more about that later. Back to the film. When Roger goes to investigate and learns the banging sound isn't coming from the basement, he makes his way back upstairs and runs into oldest daughter Andrea, who then explains the noise as younger sister Cindy, sleepwalking again, and had made it to Andrea's room to her wardrobe. As far as I can tell, none of these things happened, and this was all fictional additions for the film. As Andrea tells it, the activity in the home started on day one, when they saw, but did not take notice of, a man standing in their kitchen. Because he seemed to be just a man, none of the children noticed him amidst the chaos of moving and unpacking and assumed he was probably a neighbor or something. But looking back, they all now know he was not a real flesh and blood man. And because they did not know this man, or his name, he became simply known as Manny. They often speculated the identity of this man, especially when Carolyn became engrossed in researching the history of the home, but they never really figured out who he was. They thought maybe a previous owner, John Arnold, or maybe one of the soldiers. They knew only that he seemed nice and never threatening, and maybe even helpful and protective at times. Oh, wait, what soldiers, you ask? In the middle of the night, one of the experiences Cindy had was hearing a disembodied voice, or what sounded like many voices, chanting as one. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the walls. They never did check the walls for bodies, but can you really blame them after everything else? So as I'm researching and deep into the books, I'm learning so much. The depictions of the hauntings in the movie versus what Andrea writes in her books as their actual experiences are leaps and bounds apart. I learned that James Wan wanted to use some of Andrea's and her sister's actual accounts in the film, but he was really hoping to get a PG-13 rating and their experiences were just too scary to write in. So James Wan attempted several times to alter the story enough to obtain the PG-13 status and was still told it was just too scary. So instead of just using the real details after being given the R rating, for whatever reason, they just left it the way it was and released it. It irks my nerves to no end to know how good the books are and how much better an already amazing film could have been, given just a sprinkle of the actual truth of what happened to this family. And I honestly believe this story as told by Andrea Perrin to be true. I believe this family absolutely experienced something out of their realm of understanding, and it changed them all for the rest of their lives. Okay, moving on from my personal feelings, I really adored this film. As a film, it was so well done and really scared me. All the characters were brilliantly written and cast, and even Andrea said that she liked it despite it not telling her family's true story. She understands that the film was mostly based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine, which they sold to Warner Brothers. So really, the films have to be told as they were recorded by the Warrens. That's what Warner Brothers was given, and it's not their job to fact-check the Warrens, I guess. But what does that say about the Warrens? What all did they make up or embellish? So the movie continues and progresses rapidly. The movie does not disappoint when it comes to keeping your attention. In the film, the haunting exponentially gets worse over just a couple days, turning from strange happenings to a full-blown possession of Carolyn once the Warrens arrive. Oh, and the bruises Caroline is suffering from in the film never were a thing. In the real story, Carolyn was injured and almost injured in many other terrifying and horrific ways including almost being cut in half by a farming scythe, being burned several times, being attacked by a coat hanger swung by an unseen force, and being stabbed with what she says felt like a large needle in her calf. Carolyn was undoubtedly a target in her own home. She strongly felt it was a former mistress of the home who was unhappy with Carolyn's presence, a spirit from a life long since past. In the movie, Carolyn is depicted seeking out the Warrens herself. She learns of a lecture the Warrens are hosting nearby and attends. She then approaches a young assistant of the Warrens, asking to speak with them. He then takes Carolyn and introduces her to the Warrens. Carolyn then begs the Warrens to please come to her home. Her children are terrified, and she doesn't know what to do. At first, Ed reacts as if she's just hysterical over something easily explained away, 
But as she pleads with them, Lorraine senses Carolyn is really serious and says yes, they will come check out the farm. So re-watching The Conjuring for the hundredth time, and again after writing this episode, I'm seeing Ed in the movie much more as he was in real life. I started noticing his character, played by Patrick Wilson, is sort of snide and sarcastic and not too friendly to Caroline at first when she approaches them in the film. Ed was said to have thought many of the people they worked with were kooks, crazy people, and his character definitely portrays that in a sort of slighted way. It definitely caught my attention the most recent time I watched it. Patrick Wilson must have watched some Ed Warren interviews and TV appearances because I feel like he really did a good job in some scenes nailing Ed's personality. The film is just so well done as far as scary movies go. Anyways, in reality, this never happened. Carolyn did not seek out the Warrens in any way. She didn't want people knowing what was going on, let alone strangers intruding into their lives over it. She pretty much had it under control all on her own. Carolyn was researching the history of the house and discovering many things that she felt helped her understand a little better some of the activities she was experiencing. She had it under control, in my opinion. I definitely admire the woman for all that she was and did while enduring these experiences of that time in hers and her family's lives. So back to that burning question. Just how did the Warrens end up in the parents' home if Carolyn didn't invite them? According to Andrea, a young man, a paranormal investigator under the guidance of the Warrens, brought the Warrens to the parent home. He claims Carolyn called him herself to invite him to the farm. Caroline says she absolutely did not contact anyone. He must have heard the family was dealing with something because he randomly showed up in 1973 with his paranormal investigative team, checked out the place, and then related to the Warrens. It wasn't a huge secret that the parent family was experiencing something in their home, but it wasn't common knowledge really either. There were moments visitors to the home would also experience things. Friends of the children, friends of Carolyn's. Carolyn confided in a few close friends throughout the experience, and Andrea and her sisters had a friend or two they could share with and even experience some things with. Sometimes children on the bus would tease the parent girls, and some people in town got wind of things and would gossip, but for the most part, it wasn't a local production by any means. It was talked about enough that people knew Mr. Kenyon, the previous owner, always left the lights on at night. It was just a family having an unusual experience. The way the Warrens were brought to the farm leads me to believe the student or assistant of theirs either learned of the activity by researching local hauntings or the Warrens had learned about it by researching themselves and sent the young investigator to verify. They've admitted to doing exactly this before reading or hearing about a local haunting and then just showing up and trying to convince the homeowners to let them investigate. It was a plan. It wasn't a happenstance, in my opinion. Now, Andrea believes the Warrens really didn't know anything about their farm prior to being brought there. She believes when Lorraine Warren first stepped foot in their home and name-dropped a spirit almost immediately that she truly knew nothing of the spirit beforehand. I can definitely understand how this would be mind-boggling to Andrea and her family. They didn't even know there were people in the world that did what the Warrens did. And Lorraine, right off the bat, drops the name Bathsheba and blames this entity for the majority of the haunting. Okay, so let's talk about Bathsheba a little bit. In the film, Bathsheba is the main antagonist. She is the malicious spirit trying to attack, break, and eventually possess Carolyn throughout the movie. In the film, Lorraine is the one who shares the history of Bathsheba and how she murdered a baby with some sort of needle, jamming it into the head of the child to sacrifice it for evil purposes, and now intends to possess Carolyn to sacrifice her children as well. It's depicted that Lorraine did the research of the previous owner of the farm and discovers Bathsheba and draws this conclusion. That's a lot to just assume, I feel like, so there has to be some sort of evidence behind this, right? Turns out, in a way, there is. So let's talk about the true history and accompanied lore of Bathsheba Sherman. 
Yes, Bathsheba was a real person who lived in or near this property. It's not really clear depending on the sources you read. The problem with the history of Bathsheba is it's not really based in fact. There's few facts available, her name, the date she lived, who she married, and the children she had, and lost. The rest of Bathsheba's history is town legend and speculation. It's rumored and gossiped over, but her rumored history doesn't have any factual basis aside from the trial where she stood accused of murder. She was thought to have been accused of witchcraft in the same moment as well. It's said that she was possibly an insanely beautiful woman, and either that others were jealous of her, so she was shunned, or that she was mean and vindictive and people just didn't like her. When one of the children, a baby, winds up dead, the rumors turn vicious and evil. She's accused of murder and practicing witchcraft in the town and speculated to have sacrificed her baby to the devil for various reasons. No one truly knows what happened to the baby, but either way, it's a sad story that now seems to have been severely exploited by a horror film. Bathsheba's actual headstone was even vandalized multiple times after the release of the film. So it occurs to me, knowing how the Warrens tend to find their cases, the Oceanborn Mary case, for example, I can't help but wonder if Lorraine and or Ed heard about this rumor of Bathsheba and or the farm and decided to look into it more, and then turn it into a case. I truly believe in my gut that the Warrens went to this house knowing about Bathsheba Sherman's history. But maybe, just maybe, Lorraine really was that good of a psychic. Okay, enough of my opinions, back to the story and the facts. So next question, what really happened when the Warrens came to the farm? right after this ad break. Hello everyone! Are you ready to embark on a magical journey into the world of nature's treasures? Look no further than Into the Woods Stones and Crystals. Discover the enchanting collection of stones and crystals that will ignite your spirit and elevate your well-being. At Into the Woods Stones and Crystals, they offer a treasure trove of Mother Earth's finest gems, all carefully handpicked to bring you positive energy and healing vibrations. Whether you're a seasoned crystal enthusiast or just beginning your crystal journey, they've got something for everyone. From amethyst to quartz, citrine to obsidian, each crystal is a unique masterpiece waiting to enhance your life. And if you listen to my interview on Creepy Chisma, you know how much I love obsidian. But that's not all. When you shop with them, you're not just buying crystals, you're investing in a deeper connection with nature. Their crystals are ethically sourced and sustainably harvested, ensuring they protect the earth as they share its precious gifts. And here's a special treat for you listeners. Use code TRUTHORDEMONS, all one word, at checkout to enjoy an exclusive discount on your purchase. Ready to bring a touch of magic into your life? Visit their website, into-the-woods-stones.myshopify.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. Explore their exquisite collection and don't forget to follow them on social media for updates, special offers, and crystal wisdom. I will put all links in the show notes. Into the Woods Stones and Crystals, where the magic of nature meets the power of your spirit. Shop now, enter Truth or Demons at checkout, and let the journey begin. Okay, we're back. Where was I? Oh yes. What really happened when the Warrens arrived? So in the film, the Warrens do have a young male assistant helping with the investigation they embark on at the farm. In the film, it shows the Warrens showing up very soon into the haunting. In reality, the parents had lived roughly three years at the farm already, with plenty of happenings going on in that time. When the Warrens show up, they actually show up on All Hallows' Eve of 1973. 
They explain their reasoning for this being that it is when the veil between the living and the dead is at its thinnest. This also makes me believe they had this all planned out. They knew there was a haunting, and they wanted to try and catch it at its peak. And the young man who brought them to the farm told the Warrens about it in September. Carolyn found it funny that they would choose this day, because she believed a veil did not exist on the farm, and if it did, it was always at its thinnest there. It was up to the spirits, not a calendar, when they would make themselves known. So absolutely none of the film's depiction of the Warrens' arrival or stay at the farm is true, except Lorraine announcing Bathsheba is the main cause of all the disturbances. The Warrens also did not show up, assess, and solve a problem in a few days. Their visits spanned sporadically over a year before the climax of their involvement took place. When the Warrens first arrive in the movie, they make a point of showing Lorraine talking with April, the youngest. Lorraine approaches April and tells her she heard from Roger and Carolyn she has a special friend in the house. April excitedly confirms and says his name is Rory and begins to tell Lorraine about him. So this is an interesting addition to the film in the fact that April did have a secret friend she liked to play with, but she didn't talk to anyone about her friend, and she especially didn't tell Lorraine about him. Quite the opposite. April actually hid from the Warrens during their visits to their home because she was worried the Warrens would make him go away. April was very attached to her friend and didn't want to lose him. She called him Oliver. The home's original owner had a son named Oliver. A family by the name of Richardson is recorded to have built the home. In the movie, things rapidly escalate, and Ed wants to exercise Carolyn, but he can't because he has to get a priest who has permission to lead it. They can't get approval in time, and Lorraine tells Ed to just do it as Carolyn slips deeper and deeper into the possession by Bathsheba. But there was no possession, or thought of possession in reality. It was just a haunting, and Lorraine believed it to be sinister. Then, nearly a year after their first visit, it's decided by the Warrens a seance needs to be held to contact Bathsheba to banish her. Then they organize a whole team of people to come make it happen, all without the parents' prior knowledge. I'm not sure if they thought contacting Bathsheba would help, but it definitely did the opposite. So the Warrens call and ask if they can come, and Carolyn agrees, but reluctantly, because Roger is on his way home from a long trip and will be tired and not at all interested in entertaining company, let alone a few ghost hunters. But they come even after Roger tries to put his foot down against it. They're already on their way and hell-bent on their mission. The children were not permitted to be present at the seance, but Andrea remembers watching through cracks in the door with her sister and witnessing parts of it. They watched from behind the doors of the room while Ed and Lorraine had Roger, Carolyn, and several other people they brought with them, including a psychic medium named Mary Pascarella, a priest, and a videographer sit at the table, join hands, and begin trying to conjure Bathsheba through the seance. Roger was entirely against this at first. Even though Roger had learned to accept the activity in the home, he still refused to acknowledge its presence at this point. Andrea remembers over the years of living in the house how a rift grew between her father and mother and her father and his girls, as they, the girls and Carolyn, experienced things at an exponential rate while he slowly learned of the true nature of the strange activity occurring in his home. Roger traveled for work. In the film, he's a truck driver. In real life, Roger was a traveling salesman and sold mostly jewelry and random things, so he did not have as many experiences at first as the rest of his family. This led to it being very hard for him to accept when his family had experiences they could not explain. Many times, the spirits would cause mischief and try to drive the family to fighting. Things would come up missing or moved, and Roger and the girls would be at each other's throats with accusations of who did what when. It took a while for them to finally accept none of them were to blame. It took Roger the longest. So as the seance is beginning, Roger is already against the whole thing. Then, things start to get real. As the Warrens call and taunt Bathsheba to show herself, something happens. Carolyn's chair begins to levitate, and she is lifted high into the air and dropped abruptly to the floor directly on her head. Everyone in the room witnessing believes Carolyn has just been killed. 
Roger flies into a rage at Ed as Ed tries to keep the seance going, demanding it. Roger has had absolutely enough and hauls off and hits Ed in the face, bloodying his nose. The seance ends and Roger rushes to Carolyn's side. Now this part of the story has been shared all over various mediums discussing the truth behind this haunting, and Andrea backs this explaining how she and her sister witnessed these things through the cracks in the door. After all this happens, Roger demands Lorraine and Ed get out and never come back. And they did. In the movie, there is a cop that accompanies the Warrens and is hit in the face during the exorcism. I find this kind of funny, considering in reality, Ed gets himself punched in the face during the seance. Again, not an exorcism. So what happened to Carolyn? Everyone was sure the blow from the fall had been fatal. It took her several moments to come to, but when she finally did, she was mostly unharmed. Roger was done. He wanted no more of this talk of seances and spirits and never wanted the Warrens to set foot in their home again. Carolyn agreed and promised she wouldn't have them back. After a little time, Lorraine eventually reached out to check on Carolyn and make sure she was okay. She then asked Carolyn if she could come by the farm, and Carolyn reluctantly agreed, but only because Lorraine had taken something of Carolyn's and she wanted it back. She told Lorraine she could come if she brought her notebook. Throughout the haunting, Carolyn kept a notebook with descriptions and drawings and notes of her experiences. In the book, she had drawn a being she had seen with several horrifying features, including a bent or broken neck. The notebook contained many descriptive words. Andrea had once caught a glimpse of it and recognized the being her mother had described as an entity she had seen as well. Carolyn only wanted her notebook back, and then she wanted to be done with the warrants. Lorraine tried a couple of times over the years to convince Caroline to write a book with them about their haunting, promising major amounts of money if they would just agree to it. But Carolyn stood fast to her position on the subject and declined. She did not want her story out there for the world to ridicule. Lorraine begrudgingly accepted this, but she never returned Carolyn's notebook. Oh, and remember how I mentioned the basement and some random things being found in it? Well, apparently, the Warrens helped themselves to a few of those things as well. No doubt, they're now kept in their Museum of Paranormal Items. In the movie, they take the music box April saw Rory through. It never really existed. I think now would be a good time to bring up another point in the argument against the Warrens' legitimacy. Remember back in episode 2 when I said maybe the name changes in the Annabelle story were to protect the people involved because maybe they didn't want their information out there for the public? Why give Deirdre, Laura, and Cal that protection, but then completely exploit the Perrin family just four years later by giving all of their information about their haunting, their names, and their location in public lectures? Yep, you heard me right. Directly after inviting themselves to the Perrin farm and into their lives, Ed and Lorraine proceeded to exploit their story even after being specifically asked not to. The Warrens began speaking about the parents' farm and the activity they experienced there at lectures they hosted. Not only did they share all their haunting details they'd collected during their visits, they also shared the parents' location in their lectures. Back in the 70s, before the movie was even ever a thought, people were storming the Perrin family farm, hoping to catch a glimpse of the paranormal activity caused by Bathsheba herself. How awful to put the family through that for their own monetary gain. And yes, they absolutely made money off their lectures. I have several newspaper clippings announcing the Warrens' lectures accompanied by an entry fee. I've shared a couple of those clippings on Instagram for you all to see. Starting in 1976, one ad reads, Bewitched Farmhouse, accompanying the names Ed and Lorraine Warren. Admission, $2.50 for adults, $2 for students, and $0.99 for seniors and children under the age of 12. They even charge for lectures hosted in churches. Admission, $1. For reference, $2.50 in 1976 is about $12.34 today. Another point worth making. 
There's absolutely no mention of the Perrin family haunting or, quote, the bewitched farmhouse in the Warrens book, The Demonologist. But they do use other aspects from that book for scenes with just the Warrens in The Conjuring. I find it very peculiar they leave out this haunting entirely in their first novel released in 1980. This was their first novel and covers several of the hauntings they inserted themselves into in their early days of ghost hunting. They knew they didn't have permission to share the parent's story in writing, but they could verbally share it in lectures with no legal backlash. Okay, so now that we're past the intense stuff, I'm sure you're all wondering, if Carolyn explicitly denied sharing her family's story, then how did this insane horror film ever reach the silver screen? After many years, and Andrea finally taking time to write down their story and publish it in three volumes beginning in 2011, some agreements were reached and Andrea would assist in telling a story the Warrens sold as their own to Warner Brothers. I don't know what kind of deal was made or for how much, but I do know it didn't go as planned, initially. There was much deliberation and discussion and planning in putting the film together as its goal was a PG-13 rating to fill more seats. So only tiny bits of facts were used to lessen the fear factor of the film. However, it was just too scary according to the ratings board, and it was still saddled with an R rating, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. I imagine they didn't go back and try to add more of the real story after the fact because they were basically already done. So regardless of the reasons, this film is not even close to what really happened to this family. Andrea's books were completed and released beginning March 8, 2011. The second volume released March 7, 2013, and the third released August 11, 2014. She spent seven years working on them, working with her family, and remembering all those moments. The Conjuring, the movie that released July 19, 2013, based on the parents' life, was written well before it was completed and released. Tony DeRosa Grund started writing a film treatment, a narrative screenwriting tool that helps you explore ideas, flesh out various possibilities, and develop your characters, based on Ed Warren's tapes and tried unsuccessfully to have it contracted into a film for 14 years. It was almost picked up by Gold Circle Films, who were responsible for the film A Haunting in Connecticut, which is yet another Warren's case, believe it or not, but the contract couldn't be finalized and was dropped. I'm assuming this might have had something to do with trying to get Carolyn to sign off on her story being turned into a feature film. Eventually, Tony DeRosa Grun partnered with Peter Safran and writers Chad and Carrie W. Hayes, and the script was fine-tuned and completed and ready to present to yet again another buyer. During this partnership, the story was changed from its original point of view of the parents to that of the Warrens. The writers worked with Lorraine via phone calls to verify details from her point of view. It was presented to many entertainment companies and a bidding war ensued. Summit Entertainment won the bid, but Tony and Summit still couldn't reach a deal and the film returned to its developing phases, which is never good for a film's future. Then Tony contacted New Line Cinema for a second time after the bidding war, and they eventually picked up the film. A deal was ultimately reached in November of 2011. James Wan was hired as the director and was super excited to be on board. Now all this information is on the Wikipedia for The Conjuring film. I find it really interesting that nowhere on the Wikipedia does it mention Andrea Perrin or her novels. But we all know Wikipedia isn't the most reliable source. I've spoken with Andrea Perrin and according to her, she did assist James Wan with the film as much as she could and he did try to use some of the depictions from her novels. This can be determined through reading the novels and comparing. Also, the family is interviewed in the Conjuring DVD extra features. I just still can't understand why they wouldn't use more of what Andrea wrote, unless they just didn't want to pay her and her family for it. Warner Brothers already purchased the story through the Warrens and their case files, so that's really all they needed, no? Did they really need Andrea and her family's permission at this point? To write Ed and Lorraine's retelling? Maybe that's why it took so long to get the film signed off on. 
Carolyn Perrin repeatedly said no to exploding her story, but if they changed the narrative and it's now Ed and Lorraine's story, maybe that was the magic key needed to unlock the whole thing. And then a movie franchise was born. Fairly ingenious move, if we're being honest. Andrea states she was part of the creation of this film, and I don't doubt that she was, but I do think she and her family might have been a little shortchanged in this whole endeavor. So that brings us back to me making it my personal mission to share all the information and correct whatever misinformation I can through my research and relaying what I uncover, and a little bit of my storytelling style mixed in. So how many of you caught that part about me speaking directly with Andrea and are now on the edge of your seats waiting for me to tell you I'm going to share that conversation with you all? I absolutely am. It will be released shortly after this episode for your listening pleasure. And then you can hear Andrea tell it in her own words, as well as hear a few questions she answered for me and some of you listeners. But before we get there, I'll wrap up this episode really quick. There's a handful of little moments in the movie that I feel like we're trying really hard to just barely border the truth. I've given a few examples throughout the episode, but there were just a couple more I thought were worth mentioning. So here's some things in the movie that were almost true. The stopping clock is an aspect in both book and movie. It stops at 5.15 a.m. in the book. It stops once and then starts again when Carolyn is praying for a break in the madness and then stops a second time later on, again at 5.15 a.m. In the movie, the clock stops at 3.07 a.m., which many people consider to be the witching hour. 5.15 a.m. didn't quite fit that narrative clearly. I feel like when Andrea said James was really trying to add parts of her real story to the film without making it too scary, this was one of those parts. It's real, but not scary enough for an R rating. Another thing that was almost true. In the movie, Bathsheba is depicted as having hung herself in the tree on the property just in front of the house. In real life, one of the former owners, Mrs. John Arnold, is said to have hung herself in the barn. This is part of the reason Carolyn thought the malicious entity trying to drive her from her home could have been Mrs. Arnold over Bathsheba. The entity she experienced had a bent or broken neck. Remember, Lorraine still has Carolyn's notebook with the drawings and descriptions. The next example I have needs a bit of a trigger warning. I'm sorry I have to bring this up, but I thought it was an interesting link between the film and the first book in Andrea's trilogy. In the movie, upon moving into the house, the family dog mysteriously dies. You're led to believe it's something paranormal through the narrative of the movie. In reality, Andrea did have a dog that was killed, but she was killed by a car and it happened just before they moved to the farm. Another reason this particular bit was so interesting to me is because when Andrea tells the story about her former dog, she includes the story of how they got her and what they decided to name her. Carolyn picked a name completely at random, according to Andrea. She named the dog Bathsheba. Yep, before the farm was ever even an idea in their minds, they owned a dog named Bathsheba. On a happy note, no dogs died due to paranormal activity on the farm, though one had strong aversions to certain areas of the house. Let's take one last look at the movie and cover one more bit of important information. Tony DeRosa Grund, a major player in the creation of this film, said they did justice to the quote, true story, and they couldn't move it too far one way or another without upsetting people who knew the story. My question for Tony, or anyone in film really, is why on earth is there even room for artistic license to begin with when you're telling someone's true story? I can promise you what is written in Andrea Perrin's books as her family's actual true story is leaps and bounds better than the film. The film is good, great even, but it's just another scary movie. One that builds a new story from a real family's real story. We want the real story, Warner Brothers. At least I do. 
I just don't understand why you wouldn't do anything but tell the true story when making a movie about a true story. Now, I understand in some films, based on true stories, details are filled in when they're short on them. But they most definitely were not short on details for this story. I'm sorry for this mini rant, but it will always make me scratch my head. Even if they were telling it from the Warrens' perspective, even the Warrens' story differs from parts of the film. Unless, once again, over time, Ed and Lorraine's accounts have changed and evolved, and that's what the film became, and why the directors are adamant it's as close to it can be to the truth. James Wan even said he, quote, drew inspiration from the real family story. Why? Why, quote, draw inspiration and not just write it as it happened? I just don't understand that. Someone in movies, please explain it to me in a way that makes sense why this happens. Okay, that's enough out of me. I get so riled up anytime I get to talk about this case. It's truly riveting. And I'm beyond honored I was given the chance to speak directly with Andrea about hers and her family's experiences. It was honestly one of the coolest experiences of my life. And I can't wait for you all to get the chance to hear it for yourselves. Andrea and everyone in her family strongly believe Ed and Lorraine only wanted to help their family. It even felt like Lorraine was more concerned with the well-being of the spirits than she was the flesh and blood parents. Lorraine wanted to help the spirits, and Ed wanted to banish them, and they wanted to do it without worrying what the parents wanted. In the third volume of House of Darkness, House of Light, Andrea writes the following quote. Everyone in the parent family firmly believe Ed and Lorraine's intentions were pure, and they only wanted to help. However, the dilemma was far more complicated, and a solution eluded them. According to Catholic doctrine, the foundation of Ed's training as a demonologist, there was evil attached to the manifestation of at least one of the ghosts haunting the farmhouse. His belief was steadfast, no convincing him otherwise. According to him, it did not require an invitation to go to the light. It required banishment, class dismissal from the premises. His belief in the existence of spirits and demons was true to himself, but it didn't make it true. He insisted they could only be dispelled with a very specific ritualistic approach, a cleansing based solely on religious principles, a process learned by those who've encountered such souls before. According to Ed Warren, it is virtually the only control mortals have over the supernatural, and the ritual requires assistance of the divine to beckon the intervention of God Almighty. Their approach to a problem was to have a seance, calling forth what they wished to expel. Seems rather counterproductive. Interacting with it, telling it to be gone from this world, as if they'd had a right to do so. God is the only one powerful enough to intercede on behalf of what he has created. The next logical question. If God is all-powerful, creating the universe and everything in it, then didn't God create the spirits? Might there be a purpose and reason when they manifest as they do? Are they really all that stuck? And if they are, doesn't he want it that way? It seems like an awful lot gets blamed on God. End quote. So we're reaching the end of this episode, but not the end of the story. The farm lives on, as does the parent family legacy. I wanted to talk about one more peculiar event that took place in the parent home that I found particularly interesting in relation to the next case I will cover. This strange encounter experienced by the family wasn't at all addressed in the film, which I found a little odd, as it's a common trope in scary stories and movies involving a haunting, especially a menacing one. In the book, as Andrea writes it, Carolyn referred to these little forces of nature as the devil's pets. Turns out, the parents briefly experienced a fly infestation of epic proportions. They battled relentless, almost calculated masses of flies. They would do everything they could to rid the home of the vermin, to the point of explosive arguments on how the never-ending battle should be handled next. It wasn't until Carolyn, exhausted by other invisible battles she'd been having, finally convinced Roger there was something unexplainable going on in their home that the battle ended. When Roger looked at his wife and finally accepted what she was telling him, 
the fly problem ceased to exist. Next time on Truth or Demons, we'll visit another home that's fly infestation actually blew up on the big screen and was known to be a major incident in the home. We'll take a trip to a quaint little town in New England, founded on the idea of friendship and being neighborly. Be sure to come back next time when I cover the Lutz family haunting and the horrors it brought to the world in episode four, Amityville. Research for this episode was done by me. Editing and sounds by Brandon Little, AKA Metal and More Soundscapes on Instagram. Logo designed by Skip Pollock, Skip underscore Pollock on Instagram. Don't forget to like, subscribe, or follow wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to give the Instagram and now the TikTok a follow. Just search Truth or Demons Podcasts. Also, if you had fun, please rate and review. Oh, and check out a Paranormal State of Mind podcast, Bizarre Podcast, and the podcast Paranormal Stranger Things. These super awesome podcasts have been sharing and promoting my little podcast, and I so greatly appreciate it. So go give them a listen. Thanks, guys. And don't forget to check out Creepy Chisma. Lore is currently taking a break, but we'll be back with season three soon. I know I can't wait. And a big shout out to all you listeners, new and old. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome back to my episode extras. I wanted to do a little something different for this episode and actually read my favorite excerpt from the first novel in Andrew Perrin's series of books called House of Darkness, House of Light. It's one of my very favorite moments and paranormal experiences one of the sisters has on the farm. A moment of fear turned to relief and gratitude by a benevolent spirit. With Andrea's permission, here is the chapter, Blown Away. Blown Away. We rarely forget that which has made a deep impression on our minds. Tryon Edwards. A nor'easter is to be respected, a formidable force of nature. New England is often the prime target of coastal storms, jutting out just far enough to bear the brunt of whatever barrels the eastern seaboard, land, and sea monsters. When one is forecast, it is best to prepare for the worst and then quite literally batten down the hatches. It was spring, officially, and it had been for several weeks, but one would never know it, stepping out into a bleak landscape and wild elements. Savage wind gusts had already begun doing damage, only the beginning. The calm before had passed, an impending storm looming on the horizon. The sturdy farmhouse weathered many a harsh gale during its time, including the most infamous of all, Hurricane of 1938. Cindy felt safe in the house, but was worried about their horses, hoping her mother would get home soon enough to help her barn them. They were in the corral and needed to be put up in their stalls, secured as soon as possible. The rain had not yet arrived, but it would soon begin whipping at them like some maniacal rider anxious for an increase in speed. Both boys were already nervously pacing, especially Pine Ridge. He was naturally skittish, hyperactive at best. Royal was infinitely more patient, more demure than his companion, though he too was starting a protest, frantically prancing to and fro along the fence line of the corral. This threatening storm was practically on their doorstep. Gazing outside through kitchen windows, Cindy paced as nervously as her four-legged friends. Soon they would become too frenetic, too hard to handle alone. She needed help. It was obvious, a threat issued by the sky. She didn't have much longer to wait. Roger was away, again. Carolyn had gone to town to stock up on groceries. Chrissy and April went with her to expedite the process. Nancy was at home, upstairs in her bedroom, sequestered in a reclusive huddle over her desk in a valiant attempt to finish an overdue term paper. Ignoring Cynthia's pleas for assistance, abruptly slamming her door, Nancy did not wish to be disturbed. Too late. 
Cindy knew all too well she was on her own, abandoned, left to her own devices on a blustery afternoon. Preparing to go outside to deal with the dilemma alone, coat and gloves and must, a sharp crack split the howling wind. She ran towards the window, thinking a tree limb was about to come crashing to the ground. Instead, she saw the terrifying sight. One of the wide planks on the corral had blown off its post and was dangling by a single nail, creating a natural escape route for the horses. Cindy was seized by panic. She had only a few moments to avert the disaster. The horses became increasingly agitated, highly vocal about their distress. Cindy raced into the woodshed, retrieving a hammer and nails. A brisk wind carried their voices across the valley. The high-pitched whinnying and hissing squeezed in between unmistakable snorts. They were about to bolt. What began as this sensation of helplessness instantly transformed into frustration. Cynthia was furious with Nancy. The only one available refused to assist her sister in a crisis. No time to, whoa, Nellie, as she passed the bedroom stairs in a full gallop. Instead, Cindy yelled loud enough to muffle the raging wind as she flew within earshot of Nancy's bedroom. It was useless, no movement at all from above. Slamming the kitchen door, she ran across the yard, yelling at the horses to get away from the fence, attempting to spook them to a safer side of the corral. They were preparing to jump and run. Cindy was left alone to handle this potentially disastrous dilemma, or so she thought. Savage wind was her nemesis. It beat up on the plank, gusts from multiple directions, tugging at the two remaining nails intended to secure it from the other side. Had they held, it would have been a simple fix. As that eight-inch wood slab of wood went flying off its post, Cindy turned, screaming towards the house for Nancy to come. Help! The board was heavy. She couldn't do it alone. Her sister would need to hold one end in place as she nailed the other back on the post. No response. The child literally could not abandon her post. Her presence there was all that kept two creatures from unfettered access and total liberation. Nancy Danver did emerge through the kitchen door. Cindy's anger began bubbling in her eyes, spilling profusely forth with the curses. Left to her own devices, with a heavy hammer and about half a dozen nails, a child not quite 13 had a huge responsibility in hand as she attempted to stabilize the flying object, balancing the precarious plank in such a way that she'd be able to pound a few nails into it before the next gust sent her reeling. The plank fell from its place over and over. It was not a one-person job. Poor Cindy, as frantic as the horses, she could feel wind whipping and lashing her tears, streaking drops across her cheeks. Her natural inclination was to pray in a crisis, though she only did so during episodes of supernatural origin. It never occurred to her to request a divine intervention in this case, as nature itself was the culprit. Instead, she cursed her sister, then cursed the horses, then cursed the storm. In an instant, she would be blown away, not by the wind, but by an intervening force, one there on her behalf. The far side of the plank lifted off the ground. Someone had come to her rescue. It rose several feet from the grass and was held in place, suspended in mid-air by someone invisible. Cindy stood up and still, shocked into silence, disbelieving her own saturated eyes, stinging tears evaporating into the wind. The heavy plank securely held in place and ready to receive ten pennyweight nails. She put her end of the board up against the post and began banging into the dense pine, anxious to finish the task quickly, lest her assistant suddenly dissipate with another gust of wind, heart pounding as hard as her hand. Amazed, stunned by this revelation, Cynthia walked cautiously toward the other post, pulling a few more nails from her pocket. When she arrived at the spot where the plank was obviously still held off the ground, precisely where it needed to be nailed, she humbly uttered, thank you, then resumed the shore. The heavy board never moved. It was held in a proper position for the duration of this task. When completed, Cindy did not know what more to say. The horses were safe. She was able to bring them into the barn, one at a time, before the brunt of the storm was upon them, all the while sensing that she was not alone in the effort. Someone was there to watch over her, to intercede if anything went wrong. 
The jittery horses were responding to something, but it was impossible to interpret. It could have just been the inclement weather they were reacting to by acting up. It may have been an invisible companion, no way of knowing for certain. However, Cindy was able to get both of them fed, watered, and blanketed without any further disruptions. On her way back to the house from the barn, Carolyn pulled into the yard. The next chore was a very quick offloading of paper bags before the rain arrived in force. By the time this was accomplished, groceries safely stowed away on pantry shelves. Cindy sensed her helper had departed. Services no longer required. The other children scattered, but Cindy remained behind in the kitchen with her mom. There must have been a rather odd expression on the child's face as it prompted Carolyn to ask, What's the matter? They sat together at the table. Cindy began to tell her story. When she arrived at the sentence regarding her siblings' unwillingness to help, Carolyn stopped her abruptly, yelling out the name of the offender, the one who'd shirked a critical responsibility. Uh-oh. Nancy knew that tone of voice. Her desk chair scraped across the floorboards overhead and she sailed down the staircase. Time to be held accountable for her inaction. Gross negligence in a time of crisis. It was strange, considering the severity of the infraction. Yet Cynthia harbored no grudge against Nancy, having subsequently forgiven her sister without so much as a well-deserved apology. Carolyn was not quite as forgiving. Confronting Nancy, Cindy tried to re-establish eye contact with an angry mother, a gaze focused elsewhere. Mom, listen, I'm trying to tell you something important. You begged for horses, then you left your sister alone with them in a storm. Carolyn was as disappointed as she was livid with Nancy. How could you? Cindy needed your help. She would never have done that to you. But that's what I'm trying to tell you, Mommy. I wasn't alone. Grasping her mother's full attention along with her forearm, Cynthia sat back down on her chair, prepared to continue telling a miraculous tale. Someone did come to help me. Someone held the plank for me while I nailed it. Who came to help you? No one else was home. Carolyn was confused. I don't know who it was. There was a serene expression in Cindy's eyes. Nancy was summarily dismissed. Suddenly, just as curious as the mother was, Nancy was clearly not invited to participate further in this conversation. Her totally inexcusable behavior destined to be addressed at some other time. Meanwhile, Carolyn listened thoughtfully to her daughter's description of the event as it unfolded like a blanket used to warm the cold horses, providing the equivalent sensation for her mother. Carolyn had not been there to help her, to intervene during a perilous situation, but someone else had done so in her absence. For the kindness, Carolyn was deeply grateful, but to what or whom? Acknowledging the episode occurred, never doubting for an instant the child was telling the truth, her mother marveled at the news, wondering aloud with Cindy about the source for an inspiring intervention. Obviously, someone was watching out for her and watching over her. Maybe it was your guardian angel. How did you feel when it happened? It felt all warm inside me, even though I was freezing. Then all of a sudden, I stopped being mad and stopped crying. I was too shocked to cry anymore. It held the board in place for me, Mom. It did, until I was done hammering. It held the board right where I needed it to be, and it never let go. I believe you, honey, Carolyn smiled, embracing her daughter. Mommy, I felt love, so much love it made me stop being mad at Nancy. Oh, baby doll, Carolyn winced. That was one pitiful sentence, but I do understand what you're trying to say. As wind-driven rain pounded against the window panes, billowing clouds released a torrential flow of fluid from the sky. Carolyn made cocoa. Mother and daughter discussed the effects and importance of gratitude over mugs of heavenly hot cocoa. Cindy was grateful to have the horses secured in the barn. Above all else, she was truly thankful to her saving grace. Carolyn was grateful her daughter had not been injured in the process and was supremely appreciative of the supreme being who had come to provide rescue in a time of need. No matter from whence it came, it was there when she needed it most. Do you think it was one of the spirits? Cindy searched for an answer. I don't know, sweetheart. I really don't know how to answer that question. Whoever it was obviously cares for you and could see from somewhere that you were in trouble. 
but I didn't even pray for help this time. I just yelled at Nancy's window from across the yard. I'll bet all the neighbors heard me way down the road. I was yelling so loud. I said some really bad words too, Mom. I'm sorry. I was really mad and really scared the horses would get out. Sorry for swearing. Maybe the wind carried your voice all the way to heaven and it was your guardian angel who came running to the rescue. No less plausible a theory. Maybe it was Mr. Kenyon. That thought had not yet occurred to Carolyn. Cynthia had an innately reliable sense of all things pertaining to the cosmos. The mother had learned to listen closely to her daughter well before this day. He had not been gone long, and perhaps he was not long gone. In her heart, Carolyn hoped Cynthia was right. Perhaps her dear old friend had helped the helpless child. She hoped he had come back to this farm he loved so much in life, back where he belonged. Even though she would never wish upon him a presumed curse of remaining an earthbound spirit, she privately hoped he'd been dispatched from afar for the useful purpose served. It doesn't matter who it was, as long as we say thanks, they get the same message. I believe it was a good spirit. It's all that matters. You said you felt loved and protected. It's all we can know and sometimes it's enough. Carolyn cradled sweet little Cindy in her arms, then enlisted her as little helper, assistance required in the kitchen. Pay it forward, an important lesson to instill in one so young. Perhaps pray it forward was an equally important lesson to learn. Boo, who in God's name was it? Cindy has since wondered, often, where a kind assistant from beyond originated, too many times to count. She remains as awestruck by a memory as she was by the event that such power exists, a force capable of manipulating objects at will or rescuing a damsel in distress. About the will, the intention being an action, the child was in an untenable predicament. At precisely the moment she required another set of hands and a stronger back, it appeared as an invisible manifestation. It knew what she needed and it did her bidding, in spite of the fact that she had requested assistance only from a mortal soul, a corporal problem causing her to seek an equally corporal solution. A truly benevolent soul was watching over her, someone willing and able to help in a crisis. To this day, Cindy is as blown away when recording the encounter as she was on the blustery day it occurred. The day a rogue plank from a horse corral when sailing with the wind, a pivotal moment in her spiritual development. She did not just rebuild the fence with a savior that fateful day. She built a bridge to a higher faith. Whoever it was, whatever altruistic spirit intervened on her behalf, whoever the metaphysical force was coming to her aid in a storm, it stunned away her tears and warmed her to the bone. Holding that heavy plank in place, it steadied the weight of the wood in spite of a gusty wind whipping against it. Cynthia made contact. The implicit messages clearly received in both directions. It was something miraculous. Someone wonderful stepped through the portal of eternity. In return for the effort extended, it received the eternal gratitude of a child as an everlasting light. Will is to grace as the horses to the rider. St. Augustine of Hippo. Thank you again, Andrea. Until next time.